Welcome to Inspired by Her, the podcast that will give you the inspiration, motivation, and tips for success from some of the top executives, CEOs, and influencers from around the globe. With your host, serial entrepreneur and named one of the most influential Filipina in the world, Kate Hancock. We are live. Hi, everyone. This is Kate Hancock for the Inspired by Her podcast. And today I have Chris Doe. Hi, Chris. Hi, Kate. How are you? Oh my God, it's nice to see someone via video instead of just listening to someone bought, like on Clubhouse, right? Mm -hmm. Actually, I do just enjoy the ability to tune all my senses out except for the listening and the speaking part. Ah, oh, all, right. Yeah. all right. So everyone, Chris is an Emmy Award winning designer, director, and entrepreneur. His agency base, I have to ask you, why yes. is your company named Blind? It's called blind because when I went to school, we were taught in that very modernist point of view, which is design serves a client. So we don't want to come in with a house style or a particular aesthetic and apply that to every client. So we, we like to say we begin without preconceived ideas or notions. We begin without prejudice. We begin blind. Wow. And you created this online platform, Future. Now mm -hmm. tell me, how did you come up with that name? <laughs> okay. Uh, the name of the feature comes from a, a couple of different things. Uh, one out of utility, one out of inspiration and personal preference, and one out of a backstory. So if I may, I'm going to tell you the backstory and then I'll tell you the other parts. So in 2014, I started a company with my friend, Jose Caballer, and the company was called The School. And that was a name that he came up with that he loved. And I said, okay, we'll just keep that name. There's some brand equity there. I'll go with that. And so for about two years, we created a lot of content together and we were partnered up in this endeavor. But it became apparent to both of us, I think, that in trying to preserve our friendship, it didn't make a lot of sense for us to be business partners. We had different ideas, we had different vision, and we had a different work methodology. And so it made sense for us to split apart. And Jose, he's the exact opposite of me. He's Puerto Rican, I'm, I'm Vietnamese, and he used to say, we're Chino Latino. And I'm like, Jose, I'm not Chinese, but that's how Jose is. He's loud, I'm quiet, he's extroverted, I'm introverted. He's a little self-professed, obnoxious and sloppy, and I'm like really buttoned up and logical. And that made for a lot of like comedic moments on the show. But we really, we're like the odd couple, Oscar and Felix. We didn't see things th the way that, uh, uh, it wasn't 100% in alignment. And Jose chose like really intensely bright colors. That's who he is. And he chose like really weird random type faces like Sanchez. You know, even though we both went to Art Center together, my modernist sensibilities and my elitism when it comes to typefaces, like what are we doing, Jose? So when we split apart and I had to create another company, I knew I wanted to use one of the all-time classics, Futura. And if you if you if you like listen to the word Futura, the word future is there. So there's a preference there for a typeface. So I'm a little bit inspired by that. But as I'm trying to come up with different names for our company, it's like, oh God, and I'm going through all these names. And you know, naming is really difficult, Kate. You know that, right? Especially when you name your own company. And Jose and I were going through a little bit of like hurt feelings, both of us. And we're kind of having a proxy war on social media when we're speaking to the same group. We're not mentioning each other by name, kind of like children. And we're saying not nice things about each other. 
And Jose's a really brilliant writer, and he starts writing this kind of the manifesto of the future, right? And he started writing things like, we as creative people have to stop thinking like the way the 20th century was, which was craftspeople, people who make things, and we need to start to inherit our rightful role within the, the powers that be. We need to have a seat at the table with the executives that are making the decisions. And so he kept writing. It was a really inspired piece, but he was also angry at me. And he kept writing like, in the future, designers will be valued for their ideas. In the future, designers will be as important as the marketing and the business unit. He kept writing in the future, in the future. I'm like, what am I going to call this company? <laughs> and I'm looking at this and he's so angry. So in a way, he was poking at me saying, I'm in, in my mentality, I'm part of the past. And so he's saying there's an alternative to me and it's called the future. So mm -hmm. I'm like, I'll just call it the future. You're I'm writing not. about it because like, you're saying in the future, this will happen. Well, why wouldn't I call the company the future then? So in a way, our breakup inspired the name. And so I go on to um, one of those dot-com registration things and I look up the future.com and it's not available. Somebody else already has it. I reached out to them. They would not sell it to me. They would not give it up. So I have a workaround. I just dropped the E. So the future.com is spelled without an E. Now, naturally, people on social media are saying, uh, yeah, so where did the E go? Like, what'd you do with the E? Why would you spell it so funny? I said, where did the E go? We dropped the ego. That's why it's the future. There's no ego. And then there's a bit of inspiration. So utility, because I couldn't get the dot com, some inspiration in describing like why we spell it that way, plus my personal preference as to me just loving Futura as a typeface. And then just the inspiration or the breakup, the emotional baggage of the story. Wow. I love that. Well, it come up to be super unique brand, right? Yeah, I no, think so. Yeah, no, no, it's very cool. Because then the more people think, where's the E, then yeah. right there. Right. I just have up ego. That's it. Yeah. Ego gone. yeah. So, Chris, where did you grow up? I grew up in, uh, okay, so I was born in Saigon, Vietnam. My, my family left there in 1975. We landed in Kansas City, Missouri. I think we stayed in Kansas for about two years, something about the cold and other things. And then we moved to San Jose in California. And I pretty much grew up in San Jose up until I went off to college. But now I consider myself uh, more of an Angelino than anything else because I've lived in Los Angeles more than uh, I've lived anywhere else. Oh, love it. Now, describe a person or a situation from your childhood that really had a profound effect on how the way you look at life. Oh, my goodness. Where did I begin? Okay. I would say one of my biggest influences on me and the way I think about the world is my dad. My dad is a brilliant man. And in other circumstances in life, I think he would have been ultra successful. He's a successful person, but because he had to leave his country and give up everything he had and start over. He didn't speak English well, so he had to learn English. And my dad has an incredibly inspiring story. When we came to the United States, he had to work. Both my mom and dad had to work because we have no money, we're poor. And my dad's first job was to bust tables at the bar. And I said, so dad, you were waiting at the tables? He goes, no, 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 you don't understand. They don't give people those kinds of jobs. I can't be a waiter. What I did was I took the plates and dishes off tables. I brought him to the back and I was washing dishes. But then he would uh, strike up a conversation with the bartender and the bartender taught him how to mix drinks. These are things I didn't know anything about my father. And so my father learned how to do the drinks. But then he's like, this is not a future for my family. I need to go do something. So my dad went from his very first job as 
uh, of so someone who bus tables into when he retired. He retired as a, one of the chief engineers at a semiconductor company. And he did this without a U.S. college education. He pr prior to that, he served in the military in Vietnam and, and left when the communists uh, took over the country. And so I can see that from any station in life, depending on your state of mind, you can ascend to be anything, especially here in America. And he taught me so many things about playing the long game, hard work, no shortcuts, and treating people with a golden rule, which is to treat people like the way you want to be treated. And my dad um, also, uh, you know, from the old school, if you, if you messed up, you get a whooping. But my dad never hit me. Now, I'm saying that there was always a threat of impending violence if you screwed up, you know, the, the belt and, and the, the stick, but he never had to use it. And what he did instead was he would just lecture me. And we would sit there like every time I screwed up and I got into trouble a lot as a kid. Um, and I was not the great student, the ideal son. So he would sit me down and we, he would just lecture me for an hour. And I just remember thinking on several occasions, dad, I just wish you would hit me so I can go back to doing what it is because this is brutal. But what he did was he taught me in a way rhetoric, how to talk about things and how to logically arrive at a conclusion. And he's brilliant at it. And I don't think this is something he had training in doing either. So all those packaged together really formed who I was. It took me a long time to appreciate it because there was a period in my life that I was not a fan of my dad. I always felt like I got the short end of the stick. I was the middle child. Uh, my older brother got the, the proper attention. My younger brother got away with murder. And I was that middle child looking for my own identity. But over time, I look back and I think he's the perfect father to raise me to be the way I am. Wow. When is that transformation? When did you realize that yourself? I mean, I, I went through that. Like there's some aunt yeah. or something like you feel like you can't really get along. I mean, you have that blockage. So tell me that moment when you realize it's not really what you think. You know, I, I go through what I think some teenagers, teenagers go through, if, especially if you're of an immigrant culture and you just think your, your parents don't understand anything about how the difficulties of growing up in a new country. Uh, there's strange customs and traditions that we have as Vietnamese Americans that don't fit within the other world. And, and automatically, just by looking the way I look, uh, in, in many cases, I was one of two students who were Asian in a whole school that were predominantly Caucasian. And, and just being that different, you're just automatically ostracized. And it wasn't a figment of my imagination. It's that people would pick fights with me and bully me and, 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 and try to make my life hell. And so I, I was just thinking like that in your country, in our old country, everybody looked like you, spoke like you. So I always felt like, God, there's just no understanding here. Cut me some slack. And so you grow up as a teenager with a lot of angst and anger. And I remember sometimes, I'm not proud to admit this, but I will tell you that at times I thought, man, when I get big enough, I'm not going to like take this anymore. If you push me, I will push you back. And these were like really dark, uh, juvenile, immature thoughts. And I held these thoughts for a while. So when I, I got, uh, when I turned 18, graduated high school, um, and I, I went to college, community college, trying to figure out what my life was going to be about, I started to learn like who I was as a human being, not defined by what my parents wanted, not defined by how my peers in high school thought of me, but I get to choose my own path. And I felt so liberated. And I thought to myself, if college were available for younger people, I would have been the first to sign up because you get to pick the classes. The classes are not dictated to you. So I started to find my own voice and find my way in the world. And in that process, and it was a difficult process, I have to admit, an emotional kind of rebirth that I started to see things much clearer. 
So instead of being the victimized, oh, the world's so unfair, like why am I the middle child? Why am I the, the Asian kid in the white neighborhoods? Woe is me, all that self-pity. I just grew up. And in that moment, I think I transformed from being a boy to becoming a man. I know it's super cliche. And it's like right around when I was like 18, 19, and I start to find out who I am as a human being, that I start to realize and appreciate uh, everything, my parents, my brothers, my mom, you know, everything. No, oh, thank you for sharing that. Now, Chris, what was can you what was your journey like to get where you are? Mm. The journey is is not a linear line. It's uh, full of zigs and zags and some zugs in there. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you some of these things because I think it's important for your audience to hear this. Is because oftentimes when you see somebody who's kind of popped into onto your radar, you become aware of them. You think, oh my god. They've always been this way and it was so so easy. The outcome was inevitable. And in most cases, there's a lot of struggle. There's a lot of heartache, a lot of mistakes and dumb decisions. So I, I finally get into Art Center. I get a, a degree in graphic design. But as soon as I graduate, I switch gears and I start to become intrigued and fascinated and ultimately consumed by motion graphics. And that's when I started my company. Uh, I was running a motion design company. At that point, then all self-taught, trying to figure out how to do things. And we started out doing the most basic animations until towards the end of my motion design career where we're directing live action spots with no graphics in it at all. So that was a pretty radical departure from where I started thinking I was going to design entertainment packaging like CDs and DVD cases and, and editorial spreads for magazines to directing commercials and music videos. And so each time life presents to you a challenge or an obstacle, I think we're all given a choice. Do we go the hard path or do we go the easy path? And in my life, I think more often than not, I've chosen the harder of the two paths because I knew if I can get over that, I become a better human being. And hopefully I increase in my skill and my expertise and experience in ways that ultimately contribute, contribute to my longer term growth. So in 2014, I started to make content on YouTube. And this is like almost 20 years into starting the company, 19 years that I'm going to take another hard pivot. So my friend Jose invited me to make content on YouTube. Like, I don't want to do this. This is not the path for me. I'm making really good money, making commercials and music videos for like Madison Avenue advertising agencies. Why would I do this? This is going to threaten or potentially harm my professional reputation as a person working at the highest level. And again, you zig and you go for it. And the first two years were really tough because we didn't know what we were doing. And eventually it grows into business and I have to make another hard decision and say, do I want to stay as a, as a person who works in the customer service space where I'm doing service design or do I want to become an ed education, entertainment and product company? Another zig. So I, I, I'm a firm believer in this. Those challenges are put there to keep people out. Most people turn away. But I don't want to be most people. There's this line from the movie Desperate Measures. It's with um, Andy Garcia and Michael Keaton. And if I totally butcher the line, please forgive me. It could be even a totally different movie. And there's a scene here where uh, Andy Garcia wants to save his son. He has uh, some kind of disease and, and Michael Keaton has the rare fill in the blank to save his son. And there's this really pivotal, <coughs> pivotal, excuse me. <coughs> there's this really pivotal moment when Michael Keaton, the villain, says to Andy Garcia, <clears throat> he says to him, do you want to know where you end and I begin. And to me, that's always been my philosophy, where most people hit a wall, a barrier, an obstacle, and that's for them time to turn around, pack your bags, and go a different way.
And that to me is a call to action. Every time something difficult comes, I don't want to do it. I'm, I'm like every other person. I do not want to do it, but I keep telling myself that's the hard path and the path was designed to keep others out. And when you go through that and when you're one of a few people who do something, it creates scarcity. The bigger the obstacle, the fewer the people who are going to go that path. And where scarcity lives, so does value. And I, I aspire to be a valuable person, however you want to define value. So I know if not a lot of people are doing it, it's probably a good sign I need to do it. Love it. Thank you for sharing. Now, Chris, what was the most challenging experience you've had to overcome? Oh, boy. I think the toughest thing for me to overcome was as we're growing as a company, you have people you hire who you hire that are your friends, people you connect with that are part of your work family. And when the company needed to grow beyond the skill and talent of the team that I had, I had to let a whole bunch of people go. And it was really difficult because it wasn't that I was going broke, but I knew that if I didn't free up resources, we could not go to the next level. And so Dan Sullivan talks about this as a concept. It's not how, it's who. If you want to get where you want to go, it's not how you get there. It's actually who you align yourself with that you both of you can benefit each other. And so my wife, she's very smart in this regard. She was my uh, creative director and business partner. And she said, I know where you want to go. You're not going to get there with a the team that you have. And it, it hurt me emotionally to kind of wrestle with this. And it took me months to make a decision that I need to let almost half my team go. And I, I had to call them one in at a time into my office, tell them what's happening and tell them that I'm letting them go. And here's your, um, what do they call that? Um, your, your oh, what's the term? I'm spacing on the term, but here's your, here's what I can offer you in terms of your, 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 your package, mm -hmm. your compensation package. But moving forward, I just can't keep you. And each and every single one of them looked at me in the eye and said, okay, I, I understand. I don't agree with your decision, but I understand. And one of them had a really emotional reaction. Like he was fuming. He was upset. And I can understand that. And what people don't understand is I'm not a cold-blooded assassin mercenary. I'm, I'm an artist. I'm a creator. And for people to like have the lives of other people in your hands, it, 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 it hurt me. It took me days to get over this thing. It took me months to do it, and it took me days to get over it. And that's some of the hardest thing you have to do. As a leader, in order to ensure the longevity of your company with the people that are or who have the, the skills and, and the ability to move forward with you, in order to preserve their jobs, you have to make some really hard decisions. And that's the thing that a lot of people don't talk about in terms of entrepreneurship and leadership. Yeah, I went through that, the same thing. Um... So do you think that's the mindset issue? I know I, I scaled too fast too soon with my e-commerce business, Chris. And I know when we were at six figure, my the team that I have, they're not the right team. They're not ready in that seven and eight figure mindset. So I have to let go of some people. And it, it's I know I feel you. And yeah. I actually have to fire my own father. We're not in the same you know, it was the hardest thing, but I said, I want to keep this relationship going. Let's just not work together. Yeah. That's gotta be really tough. How's your relationship with your dad now? We're good. We're good. And I think we just can't work together. Or I yeah. think my rule is none of my family get involved with my business. Like I'm very strict with that one. I want to keep it together. 
Yeah. I think that's a rule that people really need to listen to. Okay. Whether you're thinking about starting a business or you already have a business, your general rule is don't mix business and pleasure together. It's a messy, messy thing. It's hard enough to deal with people that have no relation to you at all. It's extremely difficult and very cloudy. And the boundaries are very murky when you work with people that you know, like your family, with your friends. Because here's the thing. If a business relationship doesn't work out, so be it. But if you have to see these people at functions and at gatherings, they hold on to that, that you're the one who ruined it. They don't take responsibility and accountability for their role in it because I'm pretty sure in an ideal world, you would love to have somebody in your family work with you. But what they say is you're the bad person, Kate. You're the one who doesn't know how to run a company. And then you shoulder the responsibility for two people. And I think it's a really unfair burden. So general rule is don't work with family or friends. I'm sorry. I'm just sorry. Stick by that rule. Save yourself some heartache. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. What was one of your deepest motivation in life, Chris? I have several, but um, I'm going to tell you the surface answer on this one. And if you want another one, I'll give you another one. I was motivated to make money. I really am. Um, I am. I want to be my own person. I, I want to have my own freedom and choices and autonomy. And growing up, uh, my parents went from being uh, lower class to middle class to upper middle class. <clears throat> and I always felt like we were poor the entire time because we never had a lot. I mean, I didn't know, but I was just like, gosh, I wanted this toy and it's too expensive. Like I'm being a little bit of a brat here. And I was just thinking, I need to make my own money. So I think here, scarcity creates drive and motivation. And so as a young person, I kept daydreaming about trying to be an entrepreneur. I did not know the word at that time. And I would scheme up ways to make money, right? Because I couldn't legally work. So I, I would do things like I'd wash cars uh, for my friends, uh, not my friends, my, my cousins and my family. Uh, and I was like, this is too much labor for me. I'm just a little dude climbing over vans trying to earn seven bucks. That's a lot of work. I got to use my brain more. And I keep thinking, okay, well, I love fishing. I would go down to the creek and go cray, cray fishing and pull out crayfish. And then, and then I had to sell the crayfish to somebody other than my family members. They're not going to pay me anything. But I'm not a good salesperson. So I caught a lot of crayfish, but I'm not going anywhere with this. What am I going to get, 25 cents of crayfish? And so I keep escalating and I keep making mistakes and I keep figuring out that I'm not hardwired to do this and I don't have a great template to follow either. It's not like my family is full of entrepreneurs who can pull me under and say, hey, kid, this is how you make a business. I sold candy. I even sold um, illegal weapons. I'm, I'm just going to tell you that right now. I didn't know that that was the thing, but I'd order Ninja Stars and nunchucks from New York because I guess they're illegal in California, but you can order them from New York. I'd get them shipped here and kids were like, oh my God, Ninja Stars. Like we watch Bruce Lee films and you have Ninja Stars. They weren't sharp, but I'm sure it could hurt somebody. I sold them until we got into trouble. I'm like, oh, I, I didn't know I couldn't do that. So eventually I find my way into design and that's how I started to make a living. And so I'm really motivated to be successful because um, I guess from my childhood, uh, I was just thinking, this is what we need to do. This is the opportunity that's in front of us in America. And I want to realize that American dream. That's the surface answer. Thank you for sharing that. Now, can you name a person who has had tremendous impact on you as a leader? Yeah, uh, his name is Kier McLaren. He's been my business coach for, I think, 13 years. I hired him in my 20s uh, when we had some success. And I worked with him 
for 13 years. And he, he met me at my office every single week for about an hour and a half. I've spent over, I guess by my estimation here, over a quarter million dollars hiring a business coach to teach me how to be a better entrepreneur, how to be a better communicator, how to run my company, not just as a business person, but a person who has heart. And he's been probably the single most important person who shaped my business thinking. Love it. Now, knowing what you know now, what would you do differently? I would probably get in the content game on day one, and it's what I'm teaching people. And I think it's really important today because the barriers to your connection with your your audience, your community, your tribe, if you will, uh, it, it's totally gone. There's no excuse for anybody today who can hear this and they have a message to share with the world, whether it's about um, well-being, health, fitness, design, or anything else that you can't today with the tools you already have to start creating content. It could just be in the form of short to medium length articles that you write. It could be a sketch, a diagram that helps the world understand something a little bit better. It could just be the power of your spoken voice in podcasts or live chats on Clubhouse. The tools, the platforms, they're so incredibly powerful today. And, and almost all of it, is, it can be used for little to no money. What a wonderful time it is to be alive, I think. That's true. That's very true. How are you liking Clubhouse so far? Oh, I, I'm happy <laughs> to speak out on that if you want. But I really like Clubhouse. I got into a small little debate on Twitter. And I have to say I'm a newly convert. A, a new convert from a person who was thinking this thing is dumb. Initially, I saw the platform as really poorly produced podcasts, totally disorganized and people talking over each other, very low value. And I was thinking, who has the free time to be on all these calls? And I would pop in a room and I, I'm telling you right now, I could not last more than five minutes. And I was thinking, this is stupid. I'm, I'm wasting all my time here. But like I said before, just to keep it with a theme, that with every obstacle, there's opportunity. The obstacle is a bunch of yahoos are on Clubhouse uh, trying to do something. And the opportunity is don't be a yahoo. Go out there and do something of value to people. So as a, as a teacher, which is truly my deeper motivation, I find that it's really close to the teaching experience I had when I was teaching at Art Center. You can get people together really quickly without doing a lot of organizational work and gather people around around a subject and lead a conversation and to invite multiple points of view to talk about something with the purpose of learning. Not to sell them some timeshare that you got, not to get them into your click funnel, not to get them to, to give you via Cash App money to ask you for your advice. Uh, that seems to be uh, using the old models and applying it to a new medium. And I'm kind of excited because we haven't had a new social platform be hot like this for some time. And as a person who's been admittedly pretty late to the social media game, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that I'm on a platform while it's still relevant and it's been exciting to be a part of. I think there's tremendous opportunities to teach and help other humans. My general philosophy is the more people you help, the more money you're going to make. Absolutely. Oh my God. When I joined Clubhouse, Chris, it was all rapper's room and I feel so out of place, like I don't belong. So I actually create that business community because we need to talk about business so now it totally changed the landscape of the business category at least so i'm happy for that yeah see there's opportunity there if you just look 
Yes, absolutely. Now, Chris, what advice would you give to an aspiring entrepreneur? I think you have to get clear on, on why you want to be an entrepreneur. I think a lot of entrepreneurs see the sexy side, which is like going to make a lot of money. Other people are going to do the work and it's sexy and I'm in, I'm in control. So those are all the wrong reasons why you want to become an entrepreneur. Get really clear about what it is you're trying to do in the world. Like how will you make the world a little bit better in what space? And that's going to cause you to think about who you serve, your audience, and how you can improve their lives. And it doesn't have to be this gigantic thing. You can make a waterless um, a car wash, whatever it is. You know, you got an idea and, and the world wants or is ripe for opportunity to improve. And you just need to do that, step into that pocket. Um, the guys who started um, the Method Soap Company, uh, I was reading about it. I think they're two advertising guys. And they're just sitting there thinking, like, what can we do that's in the household? They're just looking for a problem. And they say, you notice how, like, all these containers, like soap dispensers, we put them in the, uh, in the cupboard underneath, the cabinet underneath, because they're so ugly. So all they wanted to do was just improve the aesthetic and so that we don't have to move something from the countertop into the cabinet below. So the story goes, they don't have a lot of money. So they, they work with a world-renowned product designer, Karim Rashid. And he's Egyptian. And Kareem's like, for the kind of money you can pay me, I'm going to give you one design. That's all I can do. And he creates this iconic teardrop shape that is the, the, the bottle for Method Soap. Right? And so they, they ask chemists to do formulations of soaps. Granted, their soaps are not great. And if you ever use Method Soap, they look really pretty, but they're not as grease-cutting as some other soap that you can get from the bigger manufacturers. But it's this aesthetic looking thing that sits on your counter that you don't have to hide anymore. And they solved a really simple problem and their business took off like wildfire. And so that's what I'm saying. Like if you're an entrepreneur, go look for a problem. Don't invent one. Many problems already exist. Love it. Thank you. I have a last question for you, Chris. Hey. How do you want to be remembered? Mm, I, I, I'm going to tell you a very childish, selfish thing that I've been thinking about. So I taught at Art Center for 15 years. And the, the thing that really motivates me is to be a really good teacher. And I always had this fantasy, like one day they're going to surprise me as uh, like, we, we, well, you're the student's choice for the best teacher. And that's an honor that I would want to have. But the reason why I say it's childish is because my class had somewhere between eight to 15 students. And so when you're competing against teachers who teach a classroom of 75 people, there's really no way you can actually win that. So I know it's a childish dream. And so there's no way for me to be able to win that because I don't teach in scale like that. But in a way now that because I'm making content on Instagram, on LinkedIn, on YouTube, and on the clubhouse, I want to be remembered as a person who had very high standards for teaching and, and gave it my best for the most amount of people. Thank you. And Chris, where can they find you? You can find me everywhere, right? You What's your handle? Yeah, let me share some of my social handles. If you'd like to find out more about what we're doing or you want to uh, take a look at some of our courses, you can go to the future. It's F U T U R.com, the future.com. No E, remember we dropped the E. And I'm at the Chris Doe. Doe is spelled D O. You can find me everywhere Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, Clubhouse. 
at Twitter. I try to use that same handle. And I'm, I'm just telling you, I'm not so self-important like, oh, the Christo, ice roll. It's because Christo was unavailable. Like, I think, like, my name, you know, but I couldn't get it. That's why I'm the Christo. Did you try to purchase your name, Christo.club? Was that someone? No. Someone tried to extort me for 25 grand with my name. <laughs> oh, I don't care about my name that much to do that. Yeah. <laughs> People had sent me Chris Register this, but I'm like, no, it's another URL that I don't need. You can find me everywhere else. Yeah. Well, Chris, this is so, it's so awesome talking to you. And thank you so much. It's such an honor having you here. Thanks, Kate. Thanks for having me. Those are great yeah. questions. I enjoy the conversation. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Bye. See you in Clubhouse. Yeah, see you in a little bit. <laughs> Bye. We hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And visit katehancock.com so you don't miss out on the next episode.